Hey everybody, welcome back. It is your boys from the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. It's been a minute, but Jared Moore, my co-host, said don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years. Not quite. We've been here a little while. A couple episodes anyway. Jared, mm-hmm. man, it has been a little while since we sat down to talk. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. I've uh, I defended my prospectus at seminary, and so I'm off writing this dissertation and hoping to get done by the fall. Um, but that's that's pretty optimistic. But uh, but that's a goal, man. Yeah, congratulations. We're excited for you. So you say you defended your dissertation. Was that like was that pistols at dawn? You went out to a duel. <laughs> Close. Yeah. Um, it's where you sit in a room with three professors and they they shoot at you. <laughs> you gotta you gotta block and dodge and duck and weave. Return, return fire. Yeah. Yeah, I bet you return fire. Yes, Not sir. really. Yes, doctor. <laughs> yes, sir. That's a it great was, question, uh, sir. It was very helpful. They did. A, they uh, is defending the prospectus, and so basically the first chapter, the dissertation, is a summary of the whole thing. It was, I think, it was twenty five pages long, and uh, so it, you know, they they voted and they approved it, and so it's got to go before the whole faculty. But um, but I, I don't anticipate any issues. So that's this good news, man. I mean, it's been a long road. Yeah, yeah, we're excited for you. So. Congratulations from the Pop Culture Cormdale family here, Jared Moore. We're looking forward to reading your dissertation. Uh, we know that'll be a bestseller when it comes out. Yeah, and uh, um, the book I did with the other two authors, there's actually a publisher that seems really interested. And so we're, I'm excited about the potential there, man. So y'all listeners, y'all be in prayer for that. It's, it's a book about parenting and pop culture. And if if we uh, if if this works out, it would be you know, almost summer of next year when it comes out. Yeah. I'm, you know, I was teasing you about dissertation being a bestseller, not because I don't think it'd be great, but just because those things, you know, the, the whole, the, the cliche is nobody else wants to read your dissertation, you know, and that's right. not true. I've read a couple of my friends and they're really interesting, but um, I really am super excited for the publication of that book because the little collab, I said the little, the collaboration that has produced it, Everything I've ever read from you guys is some of the best stuff I've ever read on like Christians thinking through pop culture. So I think it's going to be super helpful to the church, maybe more accessibly than your dissertation. I think both will be helpful, but I'm particularly excited for people to get a get a hold of that uh, parenting and and pop culture book. Oh yeah, brother. Thank you, thank you. I, we hope it's beneficial to the church, man. I hope it. And I hope it's a third way. You know, right now people either dive in. You know, or they abstain totally, and we're trying to kind of. Well, no, you got to be. What is it? Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Um, as you think through, you kind of unweave the grace from the idolatry. Yeah, and, that, uh, that's really the thesis statement for our podcast. You're the serpent, I'm the dove, and we just try to yes. practice good yeah. discernment. That is right. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> I, I interrupted you to to try to be funny. Thank you for laughing at it. I, I'm really sorry. What we continue on, please. I the, I done forgot, man. I'm thinking of you as in like a bird outfit flopping around. Um, Jared, that's not a middle image. Uh, that's not a middle <laughs> image anybody wants. So could you please not do I that to our listening audience? I just have you like in this white. Like you do not have costume. me in a white costume. I'll this just white for the record. Bird costume flapping your arms like do doves caw 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 no they uh 
what do they do? They do that weird thing. No, it's pigeons. What do do? What noise do doves make? You don't listen to Prince. Doves cry, man. Doves cry. Um, <laughs> it's a pop well, culture you, podcast. Dude. You don't that's even know you. about Prince. <laughs> you cry almost every podcast. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> we are way off the rails. Uh, here, here's my attempt to heart to to bring us back. Okay. Yes, sir. Jared, it has been a while since we sat down to talk. We uh, we wanted to talk about Captain Marvel, but the womanly power of her uh, just awesomeness kind of blew us all, uh, away from the mics for a couple weeks. Um, mm-hmm. But we're back, and it is you, and it is me, and that means it is us. We're talking this week about us, not you and I, but we're talking about Jordan Peele's latest, us, the at this point, global phenomenon. This thing has mm-hmm. brought in over $70 million in its opening weekend. It was produced on a budget of 20 by the way. Oh, wow. And uh, it is now the highest grossing independent horror movie of all time. It took out A Quiet Place, uh, which was the previous record holder. Do you, do you remember what A Quiet Place brought in in its opening weekend? I do not. Yeah, it brought in $50.2 million. So... Mm. Us has eclipsed that. Wow, man, it shattered it. It's yeah. amazing. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it is making Marvel like mid tier Marvel movie money in an opening weekend. So uh, the the best thing about Jordan Peele movies is that he is always trying to say something, and that is just the kind of movie that you and I can sink our teeth into because we know these movies are trying to tell us something about the real world, even if they're highly fictitious. And uh, when they're trying to tell us something about the real world, that means they're trying to disciple us. So we want to be intentional about uh, taking the good and leaving the bad behind. And I think there's a lot of stuff to talk about in us. So I talked to you off air. The uh, agreement between Jared and I, listener, is that this week, rather than going through our usual segments, we're just going to jump into the movie and try to take this thing apart, put it back together and, uh, as Jared talked about with his writing earlier, hope hope to be helpful to the church in what we're doing. So you still good with that plan, Jared? Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. When did you see this? I saw it with you uh, Thursday, last Thursday. Yeah, so we were opening the... Opening weekend. We were opening night. That was the earliest showing we could get to. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty pretty full crowd for a Thursday night. Hey, can I ask you, um, this has happened in both of the Jordan Peele movies I've been to uh, obviously get out and us being the only ones available, but uh, his movies seem to elicit a lot of commentary from the crowd. Uh, are you cool with people in the movie theater talking back to the screen? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, they laugh quite a bit. Like they laugh out loud. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sometimes, not cool with it. Sometimes they laugh. Uh, well, I laughed out loud at one point and I was the only one in the theater laughing. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't embarrassing at all, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. Did you the I don't know. I was just trying to figure out what he was doing. That white girl was crazy. No, in in all reality, I I don't care if somebody around me laughs uh, or even like a you know when a when a jump scare hits and people shriek. But it's the people who are like coaching the characters. <laughs> I feel like it's gotten worse and worse. The two things that have gotten worse for me as a moviegoer. Here, here's your old man rant of the of the episode. The two things that have gotten worse for me is that people talk back to the screen. And then they bring their kids to R-rated movies and movies that start at like, you know, 10 o'clock showings. It drives me up the wall. It's a recipe <laughs> for disaster. So, yeah. All right. That's enough about that. Uh, let me let me do this, listener. Um, I'm going to give you the synopsis from IMDb. 
slightly modified. And then we're going to be in full full spoiler territory. So once we give the synopsis, we assume anybody who listens past that is okay with us giving away plot details. If you're not, um, hit pause, go watch this movie, and come back and pick back up with the episode, okay? So here's the synopsis, and after this, we're going to be in spoiler territory. IMDb says that Us is about a family's serenity. I'm going to say a family's serene vacation turning Mm. to chaos when a group of doppelgangers begins to terrorize them. Anything you'd add to that, Jared? Um, I think that something needs to be said about the doppelgangers, where they come from. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's like cloning, right? Cloning, government cloning. Well, let's do that uh, in, in our analysis. Sure. So um, friends, you've probably been with us long enough to know, but if this is your first episode, we go through and take the story apart. We do that in four categories, creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. We want to know what this movie says about what's good in the world, what's wrong with the world. Can it be fixed? And if it can be fixed, what will the better world look like? And we get those categories from the story that God is telling about his son, Jesus. Uh, God, the creator of all things, created the world good. Watched his creation choose the path of rebellion, choose the path of sin, and bring judgment and death with it. But God's remained committed to his purposes, and so he deploys his faithful servant, his own son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who faithfully executes his Father's will, dies under the wrath of God against the sin of all who will believe in him, rises triumphantly from the grave, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and reigns over Uh, creation invisibly soon to do so visibly and cares for the household of God. And he is creating a better world. So that's what we do. We go and see how well this movie tells us about the real story that's being told in the cosmos. And then once we take it apart, we get into analysis. We want to make sure that we're making full use of this movie to uh, appreciate the art, to see what God uh, might have for us there in the way that his image bearers continue to tell stories And then also, how do we serve our neighbor with this? And lastly, how do we guard our thinking? How do we embrace the good and reject the ill? So that's what's coming up in the next few minutes. And um, Jared, before we we jump into that, let me ask you, um, is the thought of seeing your doppelganger something that scares you? No. Has it ever crossed your mind that that might be a possibility or like you got scared thinking about it? Not scared. Well, I join you in not being afraid of the concept of a doppelganger, although I'm sure it would weird me out. Um, but Peel says that that this movie is rooted in that being a particular fear for him. And since I've seen him doing that, I've read some stories of people. Now, of course, they're on the Internet, so I'm sure they're all mm. falsified. <laughs> but, but people testifying to seeing someone they thought looked exactly like them and how, how much it weirded them out. Um, so, yeah, I guess it... It's possible. It's just not the kind of thing that I tend to think about when I'm thinking about stuff that scares me. So I wanted to check. Um, let, let's jump into our our worldview uh, breakdown here, Jared. So in uh, in in us, we are you know we meet this movie with some some text. You know the the classic white text on a black background, and it tells us about the world that it's setting up. Uh, I've read online that that was added after the initial uh, preview showings because people didn't pick up on what was happening uh, as clearly as, you know, Peel wanted them to. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about the world of us. Set up up the creation here. 
Uh, my understanding is that uh, the world of us is, I mean, suppo- supposedly today are very similar to today. Adelaide, you know, the it starts with Adelaide growing up and she's with her family and there's the Hands Across America, um, which was in 1986, which from my understanding, you know, six million Americans are going to join hands across America and raise, I think they're pledging $10 each, something like that. And um, it's going to raise, you know, so much money to end, was it uh, world hunger or just homelessness? homelessness. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, pretty pointed there. So carry on. Yeah, and and so it starts off with that. And so she sees that. And that, I mean, that should have given, I did not realize that she had been replaced, by the way, um, until the very end. But, uh, but I mean, it had some pretty good foreshadowing in it. Oh, yeah, super. So, you know, the, the thing you're talking about, that, so we get this text that says there are thousands of underground tunnels underneath the United States of America, abandoned mine shafts, stuff like that. No one knows what the, the purpose is for these things. Mm-hmm. And then we go to a TV that's showing us an ad for Hands Across America. Did you happen mm-hmm. to notice the VHS tapes at the left of the TV? No, huh? What was it? Yeah, it's all it's all foreshadowing again. The one that really sticks out is an eighties horror movie called Chud, yeah. which is uh cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Interesting. yeah, I remember dude, I've seen that movie like several times. It was on a videotape I'd taped over or had had bought at a yard sale or something. Well, true story, as much as I love horror movies, I've never seen that one. So uh, would you recommend checking it out? Um, well, dude, I've only seen half of it because it was recorded over. It was like one of those things, a movie ended and it was, you know what I'm oh, saying? Yeah, like it, on, yeah. it was coming on. And uh, so I've watched half of it, but it was my first exposure to uh, zombies, basically. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I guess I'll check it out and report back. Uh, also on there was Friday, excuse me, not Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, hmm. uh, The Goonies, which you'll remember... You know, Goonies, the whole adventure takes place underground. And at one point, I think one of the characters says it's our time now uh, underground. Hmm. And I think those are the only three that I caught. But but Peel, again, I I think we're going to have criticisms of Peel, at least his worldview in this. But as a storyteller, man, there is there's just so much reward in going back and looking at the fine details of his movies. And I appreciate that even. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I'm going to quibble with some of his stuff, I, I appreciate the craftsmanship that goes in. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, unique horror stories are, I mean, they're just hard to find that aren't built on either gore or um, jump scares or, and I mean, I you know, I enjoy a good jump scare. I don't enjoy gore, but I mean, his horror movies have substance to them. Like they, it's not, I don't want to say it's. You know, the Academy or whatever like to talk about elevated horror, um, but that is not what this is. I mean, this is just a good, there's just good horror and there's bad horror movies, right? Exactly. Like in any other genre. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in this in this world that we are introduced to in us, we have those seeds of, of something sinister underneath our feet, but we don't. We don't meet any of that initially. We just we see sort of the the era presented to us. And then, like you mentioned, we we go into an otherwise normal family day at the carnival. There's, mm-hmm. uh, a, you know, a young married couple or a young couple anyway with their daughter. They're celebrating her birthday and dad's trying to win her some carnival prizes. Um, but it, at one point she wanders off 
and they're at Santa Monica and the, the, is it Santa, Santa Monica? Cruz? Santa Cruz. Yeah. Santa Cruz. Sorry. I knew that sounded weird in my ears. The, you know, the, the area there around the boardwalk is sort of like a, a carnival environment. So she wanders down the stairs in onto the beach and then onto a, uh, like a mirror fun house that I, did you notice that it says on the, uh, on, on the front of that fun house, it said something like find yourself. Mm-hmm. And so she goes in, why don't you take it from there? She goes in, wanders around the, eventually the electricity goes off and, um, she stumbles upon, you know, a fun house has mirrors everywhere, but she stumbles upon her, uh, well, it's her doppelganger, her, uh, the tethered yeah. uh, individual who shares her soul. Right. So it looks at first like she's backing up to a mirror, but it turns out she just backs up to another girl who looks just like her. Mm-hmm. And as they turn to face each other, uh, the the little girl that we've been following, her eyes go wide. And then we cut to we cut to today. Right. So the initial mm-hmm. scene was like in the 80s, as you mentioned. So then we fast forward to today. Um, I know we're kind of. I guess there's no better time to talk about it. You said you didn't see the twist ending coming. Right. I'll be honest with you. I really felt, and it's a weakness of this movie in my mind. uh, I felt like he telegraphed it. Mm -hmm. Because the first time I encountered that, you know, it was, it was fresh, but I, I instantly thought, well, we don't, you know, her eyes went wide. I think I know what I'm supposed to think happened here. But they definitely didn't tell me what happened here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And as we go along, I, I really do feel like he kind of spray painted it on the wall a little bit. We can talk about that as we go. So mm-hmm. so we zoom into the modern age and uh, and we we meet the family that's at the heart of this movie. Um, it's Lapita Nyong'o playing Adelaide, as you mentioned already. She's masterful in this. Mm-hmm. Winston Duke playing Gabe. Uh, their son, Evan, playing, excuse me, their son, Jason, played by Evan Alex, and uh, their daughter, whose name is Zora, played by Shahadi Wright Joseph. What do we know about the family there at the beginning of the movie? Um, they're going on vacation, and from what I understand, Adelaide doesn't really want to go. Her mother has died, right? And yeah, uh, I think they're going back to the place she used to go when she was a kid. And she hadn't been there. Um, I don't think she had been back since her mother passed since away. Her mother died, right? Yeah, and and that is one of the things that kind of in conversations about this movie, um, subsequently with people who've seen it, um, they have been to this house before. It's her mom's house, but I get the impression they just inherited it. Uh huh. Right. And that sounds right. So they're they're going back, but Adelaide is is clearly rattled by it. And so, I mean, is it it's fair to say that this movie actually plays on real creational goodness? Like this movie assumes that we're going to see the traditional nuclear family as a good thing. Um, we're going to root for these people. We're going to be engaged with them. Uh, we're kind of predisposed to see them as the good guys until we have some reason not to. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Do you think there's, am I missing something? No, I think that's right. I, well, for the most part, um, I do think that there's some, I mean, you have to be wondering, I mean, I was wondering, why are they friends with these white people? Um, 
Why were you wondering that? Because they were they were awful people. Oh, the, <laughs> like, yeah, the white folk. Yeah, they were the, they. So that's the thing with here, man. Peel made them the very worst white people. But we haven't talked about them, so let's just set that right. up. So they get to town. Uh, Gabe, the husband, wants to go to the beach, and Adelaide is reluctant. Um, we're supposed to, I think, conclude because she was traumatized in that funhouse experiment. But Gabe talks her into it, and they meet their friends on the beach. And it's a it's a white family, two twin daughters, and they're just the scummiest people on earth. Yeah, uh, materialistic. Uh, apparently drunk. Yeah, drunk. The daughters are snotty. It's uh, <laughs> they're pretty awful people. So you were left going. Now, why would anybody be friends with these people? Oh yeah, like they I I did not understand that at all. Like you he wants you to hate them. <laughs> like, yeah. He wants you to be glad when they die. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So anything, I mean, I guess we are missing a couple things. It's just they they get to enjoy the goodness of the real world. Like I mean, I don't want to hammer this too far, but talking about creation of goodness, they're at a beach. It's supposed to be seen as a place of leisure. You know, they're going to spend time on the lake because dad has bought a bought a boat. You know, this is this is a this is a movie that that recognizes that there's goodness in God's creation. Right. Yeah, I would say that. I think so. But he you know, he's also arguing. Um, I think he's arguing that that family is compromised. Some. I think that's why he emphasizes that friendship. Um, compromised in I, what way? Um, or do you want to save it for later? Well, I, I think that they're, I think he's arguing that they're not woke, that they're not, you know, um, I don't know. They're not aware of these, um, oppressed people or these, oppre- these people who exist, um, the, the white couple that's so trashy or the people below the surface? The people below the – I think those are viewed as the oppressed people. Yeah, um, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, I will give Peel credit on this. I, I do think there's some things he does here that that speak to racial dynamics. Mm-hmm. But he has said multiple times that this movie is not about race. And he was really clear that – Get Out was. And so I'm, I'm happy to take him at his word on that. Generally speaking, I would say that this movie is about class dynamics. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, there's no good white people in this movie either. And um, that's true. That's I mean, definitely true. I mean, not only no good white people, there's only awful white people in this movie. <laughs> like, it's not like they're just okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, he he can say that, but then race. I mean, if race is an issue in this, then race shouldn't be um, an issue. Well, but, yeah, I, I guess what I would say is it may not be the dominant motif, but it's a you know there is a theme there. So sure. Um, anything else in creation that we're overlooking? Um, I, I just think it's a. I wonder if he makes a statement about the government. Is he suspicious of the government, you think, in this? Is there a, as far as a, because the oppression is a result of the government, right? Well, yeah. So do we just want to talk about fallenness in this then? Well, I was just with- thinking of creation, like like um, what kind of world is it? Um, it's a it's a world where, you know, there, there are good dynamics, good family dynamics, but um, there's also this reality of uh, oppression at the hands of the government and those who 
who are tethered to these other individuals have forgotten them or simply blissfully unaware of them. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway. Well, I, I, it's probably the government. Um, and, and let's just get to it then. So in fallenness, uh, I think what Peel wants us to think through is that this idyllic life that this family is is leading. You know, they're having this middle class to upper middle class lifestyle that it's ultimately built on um, ignoring or, or even quite literally by the time you get to the end of the movie, uh, someone choosing to seize that in revolutionary fashion. Um, but but we're not, you know, we're not afforded that awareness till later in the movie. Uh, the, the crisis comes in when this family goes back home. They have a a nighttime encounter with their doppelgangers who invade their their homes. And here's where I'm just going to pause and say, man, Lapita Nyong'o is incredible. So she plays Adelaide, who is the uh, protagonist, at least we think so in the movie. She also plays the antagonist, Red, who is the leader of the family that invades the uh, the house and starts basically tormenting the family. So this woman who looks just like her, uh, and her strange-looking kids who also look like her kids in some way with a husband who looks sort of like her husband, break into the house, disable the father, set him down on the uh, the couch, and start explaining that there's a day of reckoning at hand and that uh, Red has been suffering uh, underneath the feet, quite literally, of Adelaide, experiencing the same thing that Adelaide is experiencing in her life, but a darker and more twisted version. So she talks about how, you know, at the same time Adelaide was delivering her first child, Red was too. Uh, Adelaide gave birth to a beautiful baby daughter. Red gave birth to a monster. Mm-hmm. Adelaide has the second child. It's a son. Adelaide has to have a C-section. Uh, Red had to claw the baby out of her own stomach, right? Mm-hmm. And... uh yeah, that sets up the the vision of fallenness in this world. That there's a there's a conflict between Red's people who dwell underground, probably the result of some kind of government experiment, uh, which I want to ask you about because I think one of the 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 troubles with this movie is that it's not particularly tight in in terms of its rules. But she's you know Red tells Adelaide that someone created uh, the tethered, the people who live underground. Mm-hmm. as clones of the people who live above ground. And the people who created the tether did so so that by controlling the people below ground, they could control the people above ground. And and they mean that quite literally. So there's a lot of shots in this movie of where like we see the people above ground living their lives, doing their thing, and there's a twisted replication of that activity happening, happening below. So mm-hmm. some people are on like a, a Himalaya-style ride uh, at the carnival, they're duplicates. The tethered below are like standing in a circle and moving side to side, like they're going around a circle. Um, and and again, that sets up the the conflict here. So, what what else is is going on with the fallen aspects of this world that that Peel has created? Um, I put that the fall happens when the formerly oppressed do nothing to end the oppression of the oppressed. Um, it seems that's that. The oppressed that are in the tunnels cannot remedy themselves from it. Now, there's one that has escaped, but she has escaped and blissfully forgotten um, where she came from. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that 
that the argument is that the fall happens when fall happens when the affluent do nothing for the oppressed. They do nothing to help them. And joining hands across America isn't going to do any good. Well, and it quite literally didn't do any good. Like it didn't. Right. Didn't meet its needs, didn't impact homelessness. Excuse me, it didn't meet its goals, didn't impact homelessness. Pretty epic pretty, failure. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, from what I understood, it was like in history, it was a like you're talking about. It was a failure, and it's a good idea, I guess, to raise awareness, if you will. But um, I mean, the issue isn't awareness. The issue is us not getting off our butts and going and helping people. Um, I mean, I, I think that you know you, you need to do something. I think that's what Peel is arguing. You need to do something beyond just joining hands across America so you can be on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, and you, we need to see ourselves um, as tethered to these other – I don't know if he would use the language image bearers. Um, well, he does but, say – it's really interesting. He says it's two bodies in one soul. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that's the other movie. I forgot. The other movie that we see at the beginning of this one beside Chud and Goonies and all that – is the Steve Martin movie The Man with Two Brains. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, so we we have two bodies, one soul. That's the mechanism that allows whoever started the tethered below ground to control the people above ground. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. How it's, how do they control them above ground? Like that that's a it's kind of confusing. Yeah, see I think that's that's a, a squishiness here with the the rules of the world because the you know, we're told that the people underground were created to control the ones above ground, but that's not really what we see except for one part in the movie. Uh, in in fact, what we see is the opposite, that like the people who are above ground, whatever they're doing is being is is controlling the people below ground. Right. They're doing it like a right. twisted, reduced version of it. Um even so this, the sun, even even how the sun kills his doppelganger. Right? Yeah, that's, that's the one time which I think I've got a I've got a theory to run by you on that one. Um, so that's how it's supposed to work, and and I think it does boil down to what you're saying. I think I think Peel is looking at the United States, and they make this crystal clear because when Adelaide asks Red who they are, it, it's really jarring in the movie. Uh, Red responds by saying, "We're Americans." Yeah. And so I think Peel sees a class division in American society, and he he thinks that the people who are benefiting and living uh, you know lives that we would say are flourishing, they're, they're doing so in moral failure because they don't realize one that their their cushy lifestyles are built on other people's suffering, mm-hmm. and also that. You know the people who are enjoying the good life literally don't even see the people who are who are suffering on the margins. You know they're right. they're, they're literally under the ground. Us we don't we don't see them. Mm-hmm. We do, we're you know bliss blissfully unaware, right? It's uh yeah we're we're essentially selfish. I mean that, that yeah. seems to be what he's arguing. And I mean I can't I can't disagree with that. Um, I can't disagree with that, but. I fail to see how making a movie about it is different from joining hands across America. Oh, um, oh, that's punchy. Well, can can we save that for analysis when we talk about what's sure. idolatrous in this? Because sure. I've got a lot I want to do with that. Um, but the 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 point of this movie in in terms of fallenness is that this is a very fallen world. Mm-hmm. That something has been done wrong to the people underground. 
and they're not going to take it anymore. And so in very revolutionary fashion, they are going to come and set the world right. The people who have ignored them are going to be punished and they are going to literally take their their moment in the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole revolution is built on uh, the image of Hands Across America. So when uh, what we come to find out is the little girl at the beginning was swapped and um you know what we understand to be red grows up looking at a at a t-shirt that has the hands across america logo on it so she mm-hmm. builds a revolution around that image so she goes and finds red jumpsuits for all the people living underground because the hands across america image is is red and then she's going to untether uh her people from the surface dwellers and those surface dwellers are going to be untethered with the use of scissors, as you would if you were going to cut something off. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. And that means they got to die. So I think the plan for the movie is the duplicates come above ground, they kill uh, their, you know, the people they're tethered to, and then they go hold hands across America. That that seems to be the plan for the movie. Yeah. All right. Anything else that's fallen here, or anything else that, about this world that speaks to fallenness? No, I don't think so. I think that's how fall happens. So I think you've got it. All right. So what would redemption be in this world then? I think the emphasis is Adelaide remembering where she came from, but also her survival. So now she can actually um, now she can actually do something about um, the oppressed or the tethered Uh, as far as well. I mean, she actually uh, what's what am I thinking? Um, just so our listeners know, and maybe y'all are y'all, y'all, well, not maybe, but y'all are probably smarter than us. Um, this movie had me spinning around in circles. Um, but she, she is, she is the tethered, but she has survived the revolution and now can live among the affluent as caring for the oppressed is, is what I took it at, at the end when she realizes like it clicks. Okay. Well, now they do set that up as a conflict here, right? Because uh, at one point, Red tells Adelaide, you could have taken me with you when, you know, when when Adelaide left the um, funhouse rather than, you know, consigning Red to live back below the streets. You know, Red saying you could have just taken me out as your sister or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of the the core of the animosity uh, between the two of them. Hmm. So I'll tell you, man, I think this movie says that redemption happens again through revolutionary means. You know, the, the big twist that, that Adelaide is not actually Adelaide, but she's, she's the girl who was born underground and red is the original young, you know, young woman or girl that we first met. And she, uh, she was through violent means, replaced by the girl who grew up to be Adelaide. I, I don't know how to read this movie without saying the better world redemption is going to come through a, again, violent overthrow, mm-hmm. right? You know, Adelaide literally built a better world for herself by escaping her impoverished state, taking a hold of someone who was in a better situation than her mm-hmm. and forcing there to be a, a swap in their standing. And so I, I, I really don't know how to see this movie. You know, it clearly has a vision of redemption. I don't know how to see it as anything other than a call to revolution in, mm. in, the, in, the, in the style of the French Revolution. 
where the ruling class can't just be overthrown. They've got to be executed. Mm. And uh, it, I mean, I really, I think the, the full title of this movie should be us versus them. Oh, okay. Because it, it, it just seems to imply that only one set of people can, can have the good life. I don't mm. know if that's what Pill wants to say, but it seems like that's what his movie does say. Mm. Uh, what will the better world look like, Jared? I would say the both groups surviving um, as, as one people. And the only way I argue that is not any of the other tethered. It, it's Adelaide herself. Um, because by the end of the movie, you've got Adelaide, you've got the tethered living with um, the originals, I guess, um, and knowingly dwelling with the originals. Yeah, yeah. So Adelaide has successfully defended her place in the sun, right? Right. And she has her family, and um, I mean, I think that the better world basically is the revolution worked, and mm. not only did she seize power and control of her own narrative you know, and take out a member of the oppressing class, but like she defended their, uh, their attempt to reset the status quo, you know, or at least reds Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, reds a challenger to the, to the position that Adelaide enjoys and she successfully puts her down. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of a bleak movie in that even the ending is not, is not satisfying. Right. There there should have been a little more detail, a little more, a few more minutes of glorified existence, right? I mean, what does, there's not a clear glorified existence at the end of this movie, I don't believe. It's just, it's too, it ends too abruptly. Well, I'll tell you, again, I, I assume that Peel is making every choice he makes thoughtfully and intentionally. Mm-hmm. I may disagree with what he wants to communicate, but I think he's clearly trying to communicate something. And I really see this as an amoral movie. You know, hmm. the, the classic home invasion motif is supposed to give us a clear sense of morality, right? It's, it's, uh, it's one of the fundamental stories of human existence. There's a good garden. It's invaded. And will the invaders be successful or will they be cast out? It, you know, it's, it's harkening all the way back to Adam's garden, Mm-hmm. And we're used to seeing, you know, if you, the strangers or, you know, name your favorite home invasion movie, the invaders are the bad guys. But in this, we're told to spend the whole time rooting for, uh, you know, it's kind of flipped on our heads. And we're kind of I mean, really, I think it's made to make the viewer take real stock of their perspective on these things, because we're we, we spend the whole time rooting for Adelaide and we realize, no, no, she's actually she's a monster, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but we're also, you know, at that point, we don't, we don't blame her or red for trying to fight their way out of an awful existence. They've basically both done the same thing. Adelaide did it to her doppelganger and then her doppelganger tried to lead a revolution where she could do it back to Adelaide and all of Adelaide's neighbors. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think you're just left looking at this movie being like, is there a good guy in this whole movie? And Mm -hmm. even, even the, the good guys like the dad gave the children, you know, they're morally compromised because they, they didn't pay attention to these oppressed people. So I think you're left at the end. Right. I don't really know. Maybe there is, maybe there's no glorification possible at the end of this movie because it's just a bunch of, of people acting in self-interest and whoever 
whoever's the most skilled, the most angry, the most powerful, they're the ones that are going to win. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it's pretty bleak. Yeah, it is, it is bleak. Um, I think he's morally rebuking uh, the viewer. It's a yeah, I'm one hundred percent. We need to see ourselves as one with the oppressed. And when when I was watching um, all those tethered joining hands across America, I thought, man, that's doing nothing good. Like, but it but that's what Peel wanted us to think. I mean, yeah, it's kind of pointless, right? Yeah, and and I mean, can you imagine if all the um, homeless came out and joined hands across America, how we would view that? Like how like we would be what what does that prove? What does that help? What does that do? Um, and yet we would think it was, a, I mean, many would think it was an amazing idea to try to duplicate today. You know, which, if which it would was, be the inverse of the original hands across America, right? Yeah. People who have some access to wealth go hold hands and it's pointless there. And I'm sure some people thought, man, that is a, you know, to, to import a term from today that that is empty virtue signaling. Yes. And other people would think it's a wonderful humanitarian effort. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so guys, that's that's chopping the movie up. Let's try to put it back together a little bit here. So the first analysis question we ask is, what's the story? And we hope to get it right. Um, we hope we did that in this previous section. So you can you can evaluate that, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. The second question here is, where am I? And in that second question, we want to see the style and shape of the imaginary world. We want to see how the the story pulls us in and, and calls for our allegiance or... Um, our repulsion or both. So, Jared, where are we in this story as the viewer? Um, I, I thought uh, I thought the story was excellent. I mean, rarely do I watch a movie and think, you know, I wish I had, you know, five more minutes or a few more minutes of explanation. Most of the time, it's like they need they should have cut 10 minutes, 15, 20 out of this, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I think Peel did a great job telling a unique um, a unique story that I did not see coming um, that has a moral message and a rebuke to the viewer, which is which I think is refreshing. Um, it does make you think and it does make you identify with people. I mean, walking away from a movie and trying to think more, thinking that I need to think I need to consider more folks in my community who may, um, you know, not not be as uh what blessed um, as I am um, thinking, I mean, as a Christian virtue, we, we, um, we applaud that, right? We, we need to be more aware of that. And so I'm thankful for that. And I love the humor. Um, this was not a horror comedy. I don't believe, I don't think it fits in that category, but there was enough humor to kind of lighten, I don't know if lighten the moods right or lighten the, the seriousness of what's going on. Um, well, I do think to... that Peel has real comedy sensibilities. Yeah. And he does it without it becoming an exaggeration. You know, like yeah. it makes you laugh, but without taking you out of the movie as if it's some kind of, hey, look at me, look how funny I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing I expect at least about this movie is that, you know, huge, powerful, intimidating Winston Duke would play the the goofball dad. Yeah. Like at one point he dabs and embarrasses his kid and... You know, he's riding around in this boat that the family thinks is goofy and he makes dad jokes. And like mm-hmm. Peel does all that uh, very skill- skillfully because it doesn't take away from the story. It grounds you more fully in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I'm with you. I laughed several times at this movie 
And I think it's because Peel really knows how to do. I mean, obviously, he was in Key and Peel for uh, you know a number of years, one of the most successful sketch comedy shows outside of Saturday Night Live, and he brings that sensibility or that skill set to these movies, even if it's not as over the top as Key and Peel used to be in their skits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he he does it. He does a good job of it. I mean, I've seen. I've seen scary movies that have too much comedy in it where it's no longer really a scary movie. It's uh, just foolish and silly. But this – I mean this is, this was really well done. And uh, even some of the – like I laughed at uh, one of the – I can't remember her name. because I, And I don't remember her name because I really disliked her. was the the white woman's doppelganger when she's like smiling in the mirror or – yeah, that's one of the creepiest <clears throat> scenes yeah. in the movie. So it's it's played by the the character is played by Elizabeth Moss, and she does a really good job because the first time you meet her, we've already talked about it, she's scummy, you, you know, you don't like her, and then when her doppelganger comes on, well, man, she is super weird and super creepy, and yeah. really, you know, sends the chills up your spine. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought the music was excellent. I thought the storytelling, even the I mean, even the huge scissors were scary. The the red suit. I mean, just every it was almost like a cult. It was just uh, it was super strange. Had me scratching my head. I mean, just but it was good. Yeah, it's well crafted for sure. Yeah, man. And uh, on the flip side of that, though, I did not resonate with anyone um, in the movie. Really, I don't think that Peel. I'm th- I think I'm one of the people he wants to rebuke, and so um, I don't think I'm supposed to identify with anyone in the movie. <laughs> well, I've certainly identified with Gabe as the goofball. Um, but I do, as you said, I think this is supposed to be a rebuke to the audience for our assumptions and our willful ignorance and willful blindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it played out in our, our theater, so you've got this incredibly interesting final confrontation below ground between Adelaide and red. And like Adelaide has been wounded and she is kind of dragging her foot with a club after red and red is doing these ballet moves to evade her. And eventually that culminates though in a hand to hand confrontation and Adelaide wins and she uses, uh, you know, this movie is about the tethered. She uses the chains that uh, the little girl was at the beginning of the movie uh, that restrained that little girl underground while while Adelaide escaped. Well, now Red's put those cuffs on Adelaide, and she uses it to choke Red to death. Mm. And someone in our theater said, "Yeah, choke that blank out." Oh, really? I uh, didn't hear that. Yeah, it, it was super classy and helpful. And uh, <laughs> I realized at that point the person didn't realize, didn't see that the twist was coming. And she thought the good guy had just killed the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was clued in at that point to what was coming. And so I thought, oh, no, you're going to feel really embarrassed by that. But I think that's exactly what Peel wanted. He wants us all to go. Uh, I wasn't rooting for the good guy, but I wasn't rooting for the bad guy either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? What else on where we're at in the story? Um, I, I think that that's all I've got, buddy, on on that side, as far as the where where am I? All right, so you mentioned some of this already. Let's do it formally. What's good, true, and awesome here? And uh, how do we behold common grace? Um, I think we've got to get off of uh, 
we've got to get over publicity stunts um, to help people who are suffering. Um, kind of like the uh, you know the Pharisee uh, constantly talking about how holy he is and people videotaping everything. Uh, if they do something benevolent, they're videotaping it. If they're uh, like you were talking about virtue signaling, I think the point is to go and to actually do something. Um, to go something and substantial, not just something that looks. Yes, like it's get a face to face. Yeah. Get face to face with a human being, um, or uh, get face to face with a politician or someone who can help change laws that would help encourage and relieve the oppression. Now, as far as what's good, um, I think I think it is good to point to. And encourage those who have to think about those who don't have as much. Um, and I and I say that I'm using my words carefully um, because I, I think Peel seems to be arguing that those who have that there that there is something there's something negative or sinister about the fact that they have. Um, yeah. And um, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's always the case. I, so, so in this movie, it, the the oppressed are all are all opp- oppressed because of nothing volitional in them. Um, it's it's something someone. They're all victims mm-hmm. they in were, this movie. They were born into it and and yes. literally could not escape. Yes, and um, that again, I think that's that's too neat and tidy. Those two. Those two realities. I mean, they they're very nuanced. Now, yes, there are some folks who indeed are oppressed, and it's because of they are victims. Um, but you cannot just say that the affluent are the ones personally responsible, and then the oppressed are all victims. You you can't. There's just not a neat and tidy. It's got to be a case by case basis. Yeah. Well, now hold your roll. We got to we got to get into fallenness sure. here in a minute. So sure. Uh, when it comes to creational goodness here and, and what's true, I mean, there's several things that are true here. Uh, there are people who are disadvantaged or, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and that we do have a responsibility to them. Like you mentioned already, I don't think Peel would use these terms, but there are fellow image bearers who are in difficult circumstances that don't necessarily have to be in those circumstances if uh, if if they receive the proper care for, from mm-hmm. those who are in a better situation. Right. Um, I think Peel gets that there is a distinction between doing something that is helpful and doing something that is showy. You know, I'm with him on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, well, I've read him say that the, the genesis of this movie was him saying, I recognize that we're in a really difficult time as a society and there are major problems. And he said in multiple interviews, I said, am I the problem? And man, that's a deeply Christian question to ask. Mm-hmm. And the Christian answer to the question is, yes, you are. Mm-hmm. Your fallenness, your self-centeredness is the problem. Now, what I think Peel sees as the definitive problem, I actually understand from the Bible, it's a consequence of the actual problem. But nonetheless, I commend him for, for taking a look in the mirror and saying, you know, what responsibility do I have in this thing? And as image bearers with a conscience, you know, uh, even those who have the law written on their hearts uh, in, in terms of their conscience, thinking like Romans 1 through 3 sense, 
uh, it makes sense to me why Peel would want to do that. And I'm glad that he did. And so in that mm-hmm. sense, the the movie goes in a good place. I also think that, you know, the idea that we have a responsibility to make choices to improve the world is a good thing. We're called to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm with him there. Um, but then, of course, this is a movie made by an image bearer who's also fallen. So there's going to be distortions. There's going to be evil. There's going to be falsehoods. There's going to be idolatry. So what are the distortions and the evil and the falsehoods here? How do we subvert those idols? Um, again, part of the distorted evil and false is we can't just – I mean, I, I agree that we cannot – we cannot just virtue signal or do things that are showy for the sake of showy. But, I mean, do we really want to classify – I think it was a million people that signed up for the Hands Across America. Oh, really? uh, I had no idea. I was five, so I, I missed that window. Or something like that. I mean, it, was a, it wasn't six million, I think, or, or something what they needed. Um, but I still think they raised uh, several hundred thousand dollars. Or maybe maybe a million dollars. I can't I can't remember what the exact stats are, man. But but I mean, do we really want to throw all of those people um, under the bus um, and just say it did no good? Do we really want to cut and dry um, something that we're not involved in? I mean, people who are on the outside looking in. Um, again, as I said earlier, that you know, a homeless person who somehow gets to watch. Um, gets into the movie theater to watch this movie is not going to be, it's not a meal. Um, It's not going to bring them out of homelessness. It's not earning power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's none of, it's not good. It's literally, what good is this movie going to do to change homelessness in America? Um, Well, I just, I want to throw pill a bone and say, maybe, maybe this does wake people up to some of the, to the disparities that they can meaningfully address. And maybe it wakes people up to like, yeah, you thought posting on Facebook about it was something helpful. Um, mm. But Hands Across America perhaps did too as well. Well, that, yeah, that's where I meet you because like yeah. that's a less sophisticated time. And I mean, I don't feel like they were you know, in the 80s. We weren't cavemen running around beating clubs against the wall. But I just mean that like there's no there's no books out there like When Helping Hurts where we've we've had sociologists study it and say, this is a pointless gesture. Here are some things you can do that actually help the problem. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there were people who gave money and time and energy to that uh, who who were trying to be helpful. Yeah, they may have failed, but we don't want to belittle people who attempt to help. We just want to help them actually be helpful. Right. So attempting to help the oppressed should should always be – I think it should always be praised, even when we need to re-educate folks to say, hey, this is how you can really help. This yeah. is, you know, um, so I don't want to do, just cut and try, cut and dry, disparage. And um, things that were something else I think is false in this is that we have a tendency to praise what we are personally involved in. Um, and again, disparage things that we're not like. You mean we're biased? Yeah, we're biased, and we when we lack ownership of something, um, and that that just goes back to being selfish and thinking that our way is the best way. And I'm glad. I mean, when I look back at that Hands Across America and just read a little bit about it, I'm I was personally glad. I think it it did more good than damage, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I think that's how much of 
I mean, it's much more. It's much better that folks are talking about these things than it is that they're not. Um, and so, I, I don't want to just throw it all out. I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And so, I think that's something that is distorted. It's not a. It's there's not enough nuance um, in this movie. It's it's too, it's too cut and dry, too black and white. Um, well, that's that's an interesting pun. Hmm. Um, yeah, but. Uh, but um, so I, I see that as distorted and false. I also see, um, also saw. I mean, I I see race in this more so than perhaps Peel wanted. Um, but again, similar to Get Out, there's no good white people in Get Out. There's no good white people in this movie. And um, the thing is, if if you know, this is. I mean, I. That's not accidental. That's crafted. Yeah. Um, yeah, clearly. And so, and not only that, but I mean, I, I need to go back and watch it, man. But I was looking at those who were joining hands, and what I saw it was all white people. Huh, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I, it's it, yeah, they were oppressed, though. I, I really do. I, I don't think you're wrong. Like I, I told you, I think there's racial stuff that shows up. One of the one of the clearest times for me is when. Um, so the scummy white people, their home is invaded by the doppelgangers, mm-hmm. and they're being attacked. And uh, they ask their Alexa device to call the cops. You know, it's a known commodity in the black community that, you know, when they call the cops, the cops don't show up to help. And we, I mean, we have all kinds of pop culture artifacts to to communicate that truth from that community. Well, he goes out of his way to say that. You remember they call the cops when the um, the tethered show up at Adelaide's house. Yep. And then the white people do the same thing. The cops never show up. And then the song that plays is NWA's F the Police, right? Yeah, that's right. Which, by the way, it's you know, I listened to a lot of rap uh, in high school. Uh, <laughs> do, you know I think, every lyric, do you know every lyric to that song? Ah, dude, if it were playing, I could... Yeah, I think I could probably catch pretty quick. <laughs> but I think the first line says basically blank the police and then Ice Cube says I'm coming straight from the underground. Oh yeah. really? Wow. Yeah. So that's what's playing there. And I think he's clearly drawn on like, hey, it kinda sucks for you guys too when the police don't show up when you call, right? Uh so I don't think you're wrong. I just think I- I'm gonna fight that the motif is about class oppression more than than racial conflict in this, even though racial conflict or Racial themes are are part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, in the government, I mean, do you think he's <clears throat> when he's emphasizing that the government created the tethered? Well, we uh, don't know for sure, but it seems like the government's the only thing that would have the resources to do it. Right, and um, so what the government has done that is that not a reference to primarily? I mean, you look at the oppressed and the government in our country. Um, who has it sided with? And again, we're in Trump's America right now. Um, I don't know, man. I just, I mean, my, I, you know, I want to, authorial intent matters, right? Yeah, yeah, and so, he clearly I, has authorial intent. This yes, is not a postmodern movie. Absolutely, and so I don't want to go beyond um, what he's trying to do, but but these things are in the movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so anyway, that that's what I've got as far as distorted, evil, and false. Um, I think, uh, finally, that you can't... Um, I think that he's always got one eye opened against the 
affluent. Yeah. Um, and yeah. in particular, I feel like he, I feel like he's got one eye open towards white people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so those two realities, I think those both those two realities are displayed. I think that it's in this movie, both those. And um, I think both of those are distorted, evil and false. It means so. What if if I'm picking up on what Peel is arguing? It means that that he can never truly love um, white people, and it means that he cannot receive love from white people. Because you'd have to trust them in some sense to to love them. Well, you have to assume the best of truly love. I mean, First Corinthians thirteen seven, I believe. Well, um, I mean, you don't think? I mean, you can't love someone who you know is a scumbag. Um, I, mean, I mean, imagine your son becomes a, a crazy. Like, I feel like I would still love him in some sense. Well, yes, I would love him, um, but love believes all things, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it would still be rooted in like I'm. I'm hoping that that he enters into a more healthy way of living. Yeah. Well, it's one thing if if your son is a habitual liar and you believe he's a liar. I mean, that that's one thing. But to have your eyes cockeyed toward um, all white people, like you're always this woke mentality that there there's always this ulterior motive. Oh yeah. Um, mm. I think so. Like where there's not an overt sin, you're just waiting for the. Yes. For the shoe to drop. I got yes. you. I got you're you. Guard, That's a provocative idea. Yeah, you're guarding your heart, basically. Yeah. You're you're trying to protect yourself and because he's been wounded by white people in the past is what I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. And um and so he's got this this baggage of I mean, this real pain it's it's similar to you know, I I've seen it with married folks who are married women or married men who have been wounded by their spouses in such a way um, that it affects their relationship with all uh, men or women. Yeah, um, they've all they've always got their heart kind of guarded, and you know, if you read First Corinthians thirteen four through seven, um, and if that is the description of love, you know, if you're always guarding your heart, it means it means that you're probably not going to get hurt, but it also means you're never going to love, and you're never going to receive love. Mm. And um and that's what I fear now that that Peel's view of of white people is woke his kind of always keep one eye open be aware um, that they that there's you know the other shoe's going to drop or or something you know skeptical and um, I, I believe it I believe that world is well it's a it's a it's a loveless world. Um, I think that the gospel is better. I think Christ is much more freeing than what us portrays. Yeah. Well, I think in similar fashion, my my critique here, well, <laughs> my critique of the movie is built on some things that gets right. Again, we mentioned that this movie recognized there are people who are in better circumstances and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, my problem with it is that I think it doesn't understand the full scope, something you've already said, the full scope of why people are in disadvantaged circumstances. And I don't think, I think it's unlikely that he understands actually the remedy. So I think that it doesn't, you know, in this movie, the people underground, except for red are there against, you know, or I wouldn't say against their will, but by no choice of their own, a greater power subjugated them and kept them in deplorable conditions. Right. Mm hmm. That's true sometimes. You've already said that. It's also sometimes true that through our own foolishness, our own wickedness, mm-hmm. we end up in those circumstances. I mean, 
you know, God is a just God and he's built natural consequences into the world. And so, yeah, I'm a blessed man where some of my foolish choices haven't undone me the way that um, foolish choices have undone people that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. That's not because I'm better or wiser. Um, right. I, I am blessed. I'm fortunate. So I'm not trying to say that it's all a product of like skillful living or anything like that. But also foolish choices lead to, you know, bad consequences. That's just a general rule of the moral fabric of the of the cosmos. Right. And I don't think this movie really can comprehend that. Um, the other thing is, I don't think this movie is likely to comprehend how those things will be fixed. One, I have no reason to believe that Peel understands the gospel is needed to change human hearts so that we don't love foolishness and love wickedness, resulting in the consequences that destroy lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that I don't think he even understands how how the mechanism to alleviate unjust suffering or, or you know, even just suffering is charity and mercy rather than institutional and governmental reform. Right. right. Good point. So I think this movie thinks, as is very common in our culture today, that oppression and suffering, economic injustice, that will be fixed when the government does something to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. That's not the scope of powers that have been delegated to government systems. The government is there to restrain evil. And so it can promote things like just scales and mm-hmm. uh, protect people from you know taking other people's private property but that is not what is most common in you know in in the the public conversations now we look to the government to redistribute wealth through taxation and mm-hmm. that is actually evil you know right thou shalt not steal and that doesn't just apply to me coming to take your car it means that if i'm elected into you know, a position where I can use the government's guns to take your money uh, through taxation, I still don't have a right to steal. And God Mm -hmm. will judge that. And it's going to, you know, it's going to basically create more awful stuff every time corrupt governments overextend their reach. Mm -hmm. So governmental redistribution of wealth is actually the problem, not the solution. Mm -hmm. I don't think this movie gets that. And it's the, you know, it's the, it's the great idol of some of the social reform movements of our day. We think the government is going to be the mechanism to fix things when the government is the mechanism that, that makes everything awful. Um, the, the ringer. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm not calling for the overthrow of the government. I, I just, we know what the government's supposed to do. It's supposed to restrain evil. Mm-hmm. And when the, gov- when the Bible says that's what the government should do, it, it means that's what the government only should do, you know, like mm-hmm. that's the only thing this, the government's in the business to do as authorized by God. Um, Amanda Dobbins, who is a critic who works for the ringer, they were one of the first ones to release a podcast about us. So I listened to it and she basically sees this movie as a criticism of capitalism. And she might be right. Hmm. That might be what Peel is going after, but that's, that's crazy. hilarious. It's crazy because, yeah. you know, everybody thinks that poverty is determined by, how many dollars and cents are in one's paycheck or bank account? Poverty is determined by standard of living. Mm-hmm. To be impoverished in, I mean, I I live among deeply poor people, mm-hmm. um, and their level of poverty, generally speaking, includes access to a warm place to sleep at night and food to eat 
when I've traveled to third world countries, poverty there does not include those things. Right. And they're both broke. Right. Both people in poverty are broke. But the standard of living for my neighbors out here, thankfully, although it's not what I would wish for them, it's substantially better than those who live in third world countries. Mm-hmm. And you can basically attribute that to the way that capitalism uh, maximizes the the benefit of scarce resources. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so to hear people lay this at the feet of capitalism is just the most introverted, backward analysis of reality that I can come up with. Now, here's what I'm going to say. We live in a deeply corrupt form of a capitalistic economy. It's called crony capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's where the government insulates certain companies from market forces and, and you know, writes legislation to cause one company to have a market advantage over another. That is terrible. It's mm-hmm. awful. It's unjust. God will judge it. And it, it reduces the um, the ability of of the market to to really get full use out of the resources we have. So if you're going to criticize something, criticize crony capitalism, while you also look at capitalism and say, in terms of increasing the standard of living, we've not seen anything like it in terms of an economic system. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. That That's him. That's not me. So I don't think poverty can be ended. What I do think can be ended is a a, 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 a status of poverty that is fatal rather than allowing people to live and pursue good things. Mm-hmm. And capitalism uh, has been the best economic system to, to bring us to a place where poverty still exists, but the standard of living is comparatively very high. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about even our grandparents, Jared. I live in the same county our grandparents did. Mm-hmm. My dad took, and I mean, he wasn't, they weren't the most impoverished family in the community. He took potatoes to school to eat for lunch mm-hmm. every day. Oh, yeah. My mama, man. I mean, they slept in, it was like a two-room house, and there was eight of them. Yeah. So what we think of as poverty, I'm again, I'm not saying that my neighbors who are struggling, that I'm that I'm be like, hey, look, you have it a lot better than the people I saw in, you know, name a, name a country. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying don't criticize one of the best resources we have to actually address this and improve things. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. And it, I, I think it's ironic that I, I don't think us gets made without capitalism. Oh, absolutely not. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you very specifically, The Ringer as a website. Yeah. And podcasts in general and, and a movie critic who is paid to talk about us. Yeah. That doesn't ever become a dream apart from capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And then the last idol I just want to touch here, I mentioned it earlier. I want to be explicit about this. Government redistribution of wealth will never address poverty in any positive sense. And it will never address a fractured society. It will increase both of those things. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope happens with Peel, I think Peel was very right to say, am I part of the problem? Mm -hmm. I hope that people watch this movie and say, could I make changes to my in my life that will benefit my neighbor. Mm-hmm. And if they do so, that they will choose the mechanism of charity. Mm-hmm. Charity is the means that God has appointed for uh, the voluntary transfer of private property for the benefit of another person. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the most effective. When, when we start, you know, 
when when we start wanting the government to redistribute wealth, we necessarily lessen the efficiency of the wealth that's being redistribute redistributed. Yes, easy for me to say. Um, so if I go and help my neighbor, you know, use whatever knowledge you want, give them ten bucks, or teach them how to make ten bucks. Either one of those, I give my resources to do that. If the government is the facilitator there, the government is necessarily going to skim off some of the resources being transferred. You've got to pay right. the middleman. Right. So the $10 I donate or that the government takes from me becomes $6 that actually gets to the person. Whereas if I hand it to them directly, the full economic resource is transferred. Mm-hmm. So if if people are going to look at this and say, how can I meaningfully affect change in my world? I hope that they will understand the government is not the solution. It's the problem. Be charitable. Like you mm-hmm. said, get involved face to face and be charitable. And and that's the idol I would highlight here and say, let's topple this thing. The government by design is not sufficient to do these things. But my relationship with my neighbors is. Mm-hmm. So I oh, climb yeah. off my soapbox. Oh, yeah. Good call, man. I think all that's good. How does the gospel apply then? I think the gospel is better um, because Christ frees us. And at the end of us, nobody's free. Um, You know, the affluent are still affluent, um, being chased by the oppressed, we assume. You know, there's still no safety um, for either group. I mean, they're they're at war. Like you said, it's us versus them. And, um, you know, Peel seems to live in a world where um, where white people always have an ulterior motive to oppress black people. Um, what I mean is that, you know, he he seems to always be suspicious of white people. I think he's actually said that in interviews in the past. Um, and so, you know, something in Ministry Man, and, and I think I tweeted this the other day, but um, – our greatest issue in life is our relationship with God, our, our sin and our separation from God. The The greatest benefit for any created being is to know God as Father. And, um, you know, that's something that we have that even angels don't enjoy. Um, and so by trusting in Christ, man, the, the gospel frees me. The greatest issue in my life is taken care of. Yeah. You know, it's done. It, it's Jesus has won the victory. He is literally pulling me towards eternity, um, a new heavens and new earth where there, everything is just. There's a just government there. There's a just everything. And um, I mean, it's so remarkable to think through, man. And I, I'm so thankful for that. But because of that, it frees me not to have one eye open towards anyone. Um, you know, it frees me to to love people who don't love me, mm-hmm. to to like people who don't like me. Um, you know, the first Corinthians 13, four through seven is is something that I can pursue, because if everybody hates me, you know, the end of Romans eight, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate me. I mean, they, you know, you know, a tether, you know, a tethered whoever I'm tethered to may come in here tonight and cut my head off, but they won't sever me from Christ. Mm. And um, there's great freedom in that. There's great freedom in that reality. And I wish that I hope that Peel understands that freedom. I, it, it, he he strikes me as just based on the two movies that I've seen of his and the interviews I've seen that that he he almost sleeps with one eye open and um, yeah. 
and uh, that that's just not the gospel is more freeing with that. I mean, I'll I'll sleep tonight because my father is sovereign. And he's got me, even if that means someone's going to come in and oppress me or oppress me for the rest of my life. Um, if I if I die in a prison, or if I die, you know, affluent or whatever, the point is that my father is meticulously sovereign, and I'm in Christ, regardless what happens to me. And so, I I want our listeners to know that freedom. There, it really is. Remarkable, really is amazing, and I think it, what, what's interesting, Jeff, is the first century. You know, if you could, if you were to take the early church in the first century, who do they look like? The affluent or the tethered? I don't know. Such were some of you, man. I mean, they were the they were the marginalized. Yeah, they were the oppressed. They were the. I mean, they were the ones running for their lives. They were the ones who were. I mean, I, I, it's estimated that over fifty percent were slaves, and. Um, you know, it's just remarkable to think through that reality, and yet God turned the world upside down. When you look at the 11 that he sent out, that Christ sent out, and Christ said he didn't have a place to lay his head, and he sent them out with nothing. You know, basically God is going to provide for you. And so, I mean, and he's changed everything. And yet the, it's just it's just a remarkable story, and it's the it's the opposite of this movie. I mean, I love this movie. Don't misunderstand me, listener. I I really enjoyed this movie. Really enjoyed the story, but the gospel is infinitely better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, so I'm I'm with you on uh, how much better the gospel is. I, I think about the mechanism of change in this movie. An oppressed person climbs an ele- an escalator that only moves downward, right? Yeah. And yet, by fortitude, they 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 climb the stairs. They they seize uh, the person in privilege and force a change in roles, and they get to live above ground, right? Mm-hmm. The story of the gospel is that the most powerful person in the world, who fully deserved all the prestige of his status, chose to go down those escalators willingly and bring everybody out and said, you know, come live, come live in my father's kingdom. Mm-hmm. So this idea of revolution it's just such a bad substitute for a God who is charitable and a God who who descends into human deserved human suffering and chooses to bring out you know a, a a vast number a number that can't be numbered according to John and seat them around the the throne uh, of his father to seat them at his father's table as adopted mm-hmm. sons and daughters um, yeah I'm just really thankful that that Christ is not revolutionary in that sense, right? He doesn't, he doesn't call his people to overthrow those who have it better than them, but rather he chooses to descend into suffering on our behalf and bring us out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way, the way that, I mean, you could, you could argue that Christians seek in one way revolution, but it's not through taking life. It's through giving. Yeah, exactly. We, you know, it's paved in the blood of martyrs. You know, it's paved in the. I mean, I'm not lining up to die, but you know what I'm saying. It's we know our giving. options. Yeah, yeah. It's through giving our lives, man. We give our lives, and the Lord uses that to change people and change not just people, but change societies. Hmm. Hmm. Amen. Well, Jared, anything more on how the gospel applies? Uh, just well, not how the gospel applies, but I just want to say that the one principle that 
I want to take from this movie is um, viewing myself as one with my neighbor. Yeah. Um, I th- I think that is a helpful picture that fits in with uh, Christianity. In particular, um, I'm one with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and and also there's a sense where I'm one with my neighbor. You're here. Well, so can, I, I know that we've kind of went long on this already, but there's so much about this movie I kind of want to talk to you about and talk to our listeners about. Can we can we have just a section of miscellaneous? Sure. So I said that I thought the the movie telegraphed the ending, but before we get to why I think that, um, can can we just affirm what you've already said about how how much we like this movie? Like in my mind, I I think this is almost a perfect movie in terms of storytelling, in terms of craftsmanship of the story, in terms of like the visual presentation, the skill it takes to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've got quibbles with the ideology of the movie and the worldview behind it, but in terms of just the experience of watching a well-made movie, this is this is right up there among the very best I've seen. Yes, I, I totally agree. I would say what top top twenty five all time, something like that. Yeah, and I mean, really, with Peel, I, I almost feel bad for the guy because he, you know, if he has a bad movie in him, it's going to be the most jarring thing ever because we're used to him just putting up perfect tens. You know what I mean? It's like Shyamalan effect, you know. Yeah, but even so, man, you know, Shyamalan, the Sixth Sense, I think, is comparable to these movies, but. His second doesn't compare to Peel's second, whichever one you pick, right? I think I probably like Get Out a little bit more than this one, but you know, whichever one, if this were a basketball matchup, you would say the sixth sense takes out one or the other in a competition, but then whichever second movie Peel has is like a class of category above whatever Shyamalan's second best movie is, mm-hmm. at least in his early his early work. Yeah. Um so I think this movie telegraphed the the ending because one it it didn't it didn't show us what happened to the to the little girl in that first confrontation. Um, also, did you notice that as Adelaide became more violent by necessity, right? She has to defend her family and whatnot. She started grunting and and howling like the the tether did. I did not notice that. No. Yeah. So when she's she's fighting in. The white friend's house at the very end, she takes out one of the daughters who survived the fall off the balcony. She's starting to be guttural. And then when she kills Red in the in the tunnels, she's being really guttural as well. Mm. And so I, I just was like, man, they're making this. They're making it pretty clear what they're setting us up for. And then we get that payoff. And I thought, yep. Okay. Mm. Um, did... Uh, did you read this theory about how it's not just Adelaide and Red who swapped? Uh-uh. So, the, you know, you've got uh, the son, Jason and Pluto, right? Those are the two characters that are linked in these two families. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, we said that they say very early on the people below were created to control the people above. Mm-hmm. Well, the only time we really see that happen... Is that uh, that scene where the family has gotten mobile again? They got in the Range Rover, or whatever. They're driving back to the coastal, uh, back to the beach, and they see Pluto standing in the street in front of a fire, and he set a trap where there's like gasoline underneath their car, uh-huh. and it looks like he's trying to blow them up. Well, Jason gets out of the car, 
and causes Pluto to back into the fire. You remember that? Yeah. So either Peel's rules are squishy and the control goes both ways. Okay, that's one theory. The other would be that Jason, to control Pluto, would have to be one of the tethered rather than one of the above-ground dwellers. I thought the I thought the above ground dwellers like what is the reenactments downstairs down under like the underground that we see? Well, see that that's that's kind of leads itself lends itself to the uh, that the 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 rules in this movie aren't meant to be taken hard and fast. Just that there's a link and they can control each other. Gotcha. Okay. But see in the movie, um, the way that Red becomes the leader of the tethered is that Adelaide goes up above ground and starts taking dance lessons, which causes Red, the original girl, to be dancing in front of the tethered. And they realize she's special and they need to follow her. So the tethered person above ground was controlling the otherwise surface dweller underground. Does that make sense? Yes, right. Well, th- that is the rule that they established at the beginning, that the, that the tethered were created to control the people who lived above ground. Hmm. And we see that, like, in reverse, mostly in the movie, but it, it's at the heart of the thing. And so people who think uh, about this theory that's been spreading online is that at some point, Adelaide swapped her boys as well. Uh, which, you know, she clearly knows exactly where to go when when Red seizes Jason in that same scene and takes off with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I read this movie as Adelaide slowly remembering what she had done. But a lot of people say, no, she knew the whole time. And she has been she's basically been dipping back in to fix problems. So the idea in the theory is that Pluto got burned uh the the kid that's identified as Pluto got burned above ground and that Adelaide swapped him uh and if not that then just the idea that Jason who's always playing with that lighter mm-hmm. you know Pluto below ground would have had to be doing the same thing and just his lighter worked where Jason's wouldn't and it, and it burned him gotcha but anyway that's that's a theory that's going around um I think Peel too is somebody who loves horror. I'm just firing stuff at you. Feel free to point out any detail that captivated you. But this movie rewards this kind of detail. I, I feel like with Pluto, Peel created a hybrid of Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and Jason Voorhees. You know, Pluto is burned like Freddy is. Mm-hmm. He's wearing a jumpsuit like Michael does. And when he's ready to attack, he pulls his mask down, which is what Jason does when he moves, you know, into into kill mode. Uh-huh. So. Good call. Yeah. Um, can I tell you, too, as a Christian, I love that Adelaide became more human through the arts. And this movie sets up the idea that basically if the people below were born above ground, they would be just as normal and adept as normal people who live above ground. Adelaide is disadvantaged. She's never heard anybody speak. And, you know, she's part of this underground society. But when she comes up, her family gets her involved in the arts, and it helps her learn to communicate. And, and again, it, it humanizes her and mm. reconnects her to society and the world. And uh, I, I love that. I think the arts are one of the ways we see God's objective beauty and goodness. And that, you know, 
participating in the arts well can humanize us. So I, I appreciated that detail. Do you, I mean, I agree with you. This is another miscellaneous thing. Do you think that the mother, like she was present at each of the deaths of the tethered for children? Yeah. Like she had to, I don't know if help is the right word. Um, you talking about Adelaide? Yeah, like she got out of the car and went to make sure that her tethered daughter was dead. Yeah, uh, so that theory about there being swaps, that's not just Adelaide, it accounts for that. Okay. I'm not sure if that's where you're going, but anyway, is that what you okay. want to talk about? Yeah, I was just wondering. I, I didn't understand that, really. Like she had to she had to do it. I don't know if that's if there's something to that about yeah mother or you're thinking that it's just that it's just giving uh, credence to that you know trying to an easter egg type thing or subtly hint at that these were her um her real children yeah so i and again two reads are possible here i guess i default to just the straightforward one that that those kids were born underground and they're products of the tethered but if you if you go back to that scene where jason and pluto that final confrontation where Pluto dies in the fire. Adelaide is watching Pluto back up and she keeps saying, no, 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 stop. She's pleading with him to quit. Yeah. Now, if you take the straightforward reading, that's because she doesn't want him to drop his match and blow up the car. Mm. If you take the swap theory, it's that she knows that's her child. Okay. And she's trying to call him out of, you know, self-immolation. And I think wow. it, I think the straightforward read is really tough with the death of uh, Zora's tethered because she gets out of the car to go find her and put herself in danger. She finds Umbre, which I think is one of the scariest parts of the movie, wrapped around the tree with her spine broken, but still trying to fight. Yeah. And she comforts her. She kind of shushes her and tries to calm her. Mm-hmm. And that could be because she sees her daughter's face on Umbre. Okay, that that's fine. But why'd she get out of the car to go find her? You know, you would think if she got out of the car to go find her, she went to make sure she was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't, and she even does it over her family pleading with her to stay in the car. When she finds her, she doesn't execute her and make sure she's dead. She comforts her in her dying. And so yeah. the people who hold the swap theory would say, yeah, maybe she didn't just swap Jason. Hmm. So, by the way, I think that um, that she was the scariest tethered um, that Zora's doppelganger. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, she freaked me out, man. She she was sinister, creepily smiling all the time uh-huh. and, and fast. Yeah, just I don't know, just just strange. I've got a daughter that's right at that age, <laughs> 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 who's beautiful and smile, you know, always smiling and. But she didn't. She didn't creep me out or anything. But th- just this little girl that smiling like that. Like I don't know. Somebody, dude. There's something about a. Uh, I don't know. Someone coming at you smiling, mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. trying to do. They want to do you harm. Yeah. Um. Is just. I don't know. It's it's like uh, what Pennywise, I guess. Sure. It kind of subverts something we're used to seeing as as positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, uh, anything else that's just super cool here that we want to praise? I guess we could talk more and more. Uh, you know, hey, what kinda, was the? Sorry, let, what, tell me about the glove. What was the, up with the right? The glove. The glove on their right hand. Yes. Yeah, I don't have any good theories about that. Do you, have you come across anything? 
I haven't. I just, I just, I thought you might have. I don't know if it's something about, um, I don't know if it's something about dealing with similar to the scissors where it's untethering, and the white, the white rabbit. Those two things, the glove and the white rabbit. I still haven't wrapped my mind around. Yeah, though. And listener, if you've hung with us this long, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, clearly, Peel wants the, uh, uh, you know, that he wants to harken back to Freddy Krueger. Uh, mm-hmm. with the glove thing. It's supposed to look like Freddy's knife hand glove. But is there something that's, you know, more important to the storyline? I don't know about that. I guess I have to dig in. The white rabbit symbolism is the is the biggest question for me coming out of it. So when we first see the, uh, the, the well, I mean, really when we first get into the movie, we see first a bunch of rabbits in a cage in what looks like a schoolroom. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Most of them are white. Uh, there's a few brown ones, and in that initial scene, the brown ones are, uh, as the camera zooms out, they're at points of a triangle. And hmm. I don't know what that necessarily means, but it's it's certainly intentional, again, with Peel. Um, and then when we first see Zora, she has the image of a white rabbit on her shirt. And uh, my wife pointed that out to me. You know, I think that, that rabbits are, you know, they're they're an invasive species. They breed really rapidly. I think probably that's a metaphor for people in poverty, like how how um, how how more advantaged people callously view people in poverty. You know, they're just out there breeding. Um, hmm. But it also provides a food source for the tethered, right? Because the rabbits breed so rapidly, they can be a sustainable food source. Um, but Zora has that on her shirt, and apparently, the last shirt that Zora wears in the movie is. It's got a Vietnamese word on it, and that word means rabbit. So I've yet to put all the dots together and figure out what Peel's doing with that. I know that Zora can run really fast, but it just seems like that's, uh, I don't know, that that's not enough to fulfill all the attention he's paying to white rabbits. You know, traditionally, rabbits symbolize a bright future, and that, that powers uh, greater than yourself are looking out for, for you. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, Zora being under the care of Adelaide, who is this revolutionary, revolutionary figure who's her mother. I I really don't know, but I'd love to hear listener thoughts. Hmm. Uh, Last two things, man, I'll let you go. Um, One, the first thing every Christian who watched this movie did was run out and see what Jeremiah 1111 said, right? Did you look that up? I did. So it's a text about God announcing judgment on Israel. Uh, I think Peel is using that to uh, to talk about Red's revolution as a judgment, and um, the text in Jeremiah says that this this judgment's inescapable. That Israel's going to suffer it. There's no way to to get away from this disaster. Uh, though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. And uh, I, I think that's what Peel is doing with that. Any hmm. other any other thought on that? No, that sounds right. That sounds right. That um, hmm. that's inevitable. Yeah, that uh, reaping what you sow type thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, one detail connected with that is something I read online, and I don't know how to track down who first said it. And I'm, I'm I hate that, but someone online pointed out that you know we see the Jeremiah eleven eleven guy dead when Adelaide's family first gets to the beach. Mm-hmm. And then when Jason is going to the bathroom, um, 
he sees a man standing on the beach with his hands out and he's dripping blood. Mm-hmm. And the person online pointed out that the the tethered version of the Jeremiah eleven eleven guy was the first successful duplicate. He had killed his above ground duplicate and he had gone to the beach where Jason saw him. He'd gone to the beach to start the chain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, across America, which I totally missed uh, when I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it shows him again later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I missed until you just said that. Um, that makes sense. Oh, another thing about Jason with the beach, when Jason's playing on the beach and they ask him what he's doing, you know, what do you, what do kids build on the on the beach? Castles, right? Yeah. Do you remember what he was building? I don't. I didn't. I missed what he said. Tunnels. Did he really? Yeah. Okay. Now that yeah that that's got to be yeah that's got to be he he's definitely got to be swapped. Yeah. I mean, I, again, the the theory sounds crazy until you kind of press into it a little bit and it starts sounding more credible. Yeah. Because again, none of this stuff is accidental for Peel. Or if it is, it's the first time it's ever been accidental, you know. What about um is there anything with the dad like the so the dad, the the doppelganger seemed to have his tongue cut out. Well, no, um, it's cuz they can't talk. Well, I know they can't talk, but you don't none of the kids are are grunting. Oh no, uh, I mean Pluto grunts. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. He I scurries just, around like an animal. Um, yeah. Um, well, and I, and at some point, at some point, uh, I think that the, the tethered version is called Abraham. You know, when he's trying to get Gabe onto the boat, he turns and like howls out into the night and something responds to him. I thought it was Zora. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Derek said that he thought it was the duplicate of the, of the white husband. Oh, really? But they were like communicating, you know, in the night. Huh? I thought it was uh, the oh, what's her name? Um, Umbra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought so too. But either way, he's talking to some other, you know, tethered out there. Gotcha. Okay. It's just odd that she would swap just her children and not her husband. You know, not the husband, right? Yeah. He may have been a useful idiot. The one thing that is interesting about this is Winston Duke said that he did not view Abraham. When he was playing him, he didn't view Abraham as an evil character. Yeah. He, he said that this was a guy who had been born underground and had suffered. He said that, you know, when he comes up, the first thing he does is take uh, Gabe's glasses and mm-hmm. put them on. And he said that's the first time the guy's ever had health care. Huh. And so I think it really does heighten the idea that this is a class warfare kind of kind of story. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, man. That's, yeah. I guess the last thing I want to ask you about is what do you make of the ending? So the ending specifically, uh, Adelaide, I think they're just briefly kind of reverts to a more animalistic version of herself, but catches herself and kind of snaps back into Adelaide mode. Mm -hmm. But we see that Jason is watching. And so Jason is staring her down. She looks at him and says, everything's going to go back to the way it used to be, which has a lot of freight if you think they were swapped, if if you think Jason was swapped. But she tells him that, and Jason pulls his mask down. And I'm torn between two. Tell me if you got a third or help me pick between these. One, it's clear that Jason realizes what's happened, that his mom is not the original model, but she's actually, you know, the one from underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people think that Red, when she took Jason, told her, told, or rather told him, 
the deal. And so he knows there. I'm more inclined to think that he realized his mom lives behind a mask. Mm. And so he pulled his mask down sort of self, you know, un, unaware. He He's basically replicating what he's just realized about her. Um, mm. So, and, you know, it, it could be too that like he's uncomfortable around her now. So he puts a little distance between them by pulling that mask down. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned earlier, Pluto pulls his mask down when he's ready to attack. And so it may be a, tra- a trait where if Jason, you know, if Jason is also from underground, he may be expressing solidarity with his mom and kind of saying, I know my role to play. Mm-hmm. You have any inclinations on which one of those is preferable? Um, I assume that second one. Yeah. Yeah. That may be it. Cause I assume they're, um, that is kind of this merging of the two groups, but hopefully they'll care for the tethered now instead of killing them. But maybe it's too late. Maybe the revolution is irreversible. Yeah. I do think there's some, there's some, I mean, I don't know. Some Peel has talked about maybe making a trilogy. So I, I would love it if he did. And he may tighten some of this up. One thing that happens with uh, Adelaide and Jason at the beginning is they're listening to that five on it. Mm-hmm. And she leans over and tells Jason to get on beat. And she's snapping to try to help him get on the beat of the song. But she's not on the beat of the song. Mm-hmm. And Jason, when he responds, is also not on the beat of the song. But he is in rhythm with his mom. Mm. And I, I knew she was out of rhythm when I was watching it. It took me you know, thinking about it and reading about it to, to pick up the rest of that. I think there's a sense. I think there's a possibility where they are compatriots now. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like they've been successful. Jason is also a successful revolutionary and they're going to they're going to set the world right. Hmm. But anyway, it's great. Yeah, I think this movie just like Get Out will will reward multiple rewatches. I'm looking forward to doing it. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. I want to see a director's cut if there is such a one. 100%. The, the Get Out director's commentary on the Blu-ray is great, and I'm assuming this one will be as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Jared, I we went long anyway, and uh, morning will come early for both of us, so let's put a bow on this. Where can our listeners find you outside of the world of this podcast? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. Um, we've got another podcast named All Truth is God's Truth. Yeah, check it out. Um, Jeff and I are writing uh, periodically here and there for monergism.com. Uh, so check out uh, our articles there on the Monergism blog. And be sure to join our Facebook group at Pop Culture Quorum Dale Perpetual After Party. And come, come converse with us. Let us know what you think about the movie and um, let us know if you got any theories. Absolutely. I'm at Right Jeff on most social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you. If you guys are willing to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you hear this podcast, I guess I shouldn't say iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts now. 
Uh, if you can leave us a five-star review, we would really love that. If you say, hey, I can't quite give you five stars, give us what you can. Uh, that helps us know what you like, what you don't like, and how to how to better tailor the what we're doing here on the podcast to to the needs of those who are listening. It also helps other people find the show. So if you're willing to to give us a review, we would much appreciate that. Uh, we're not entirely sure what we're going to cover for the next episode, but we will get back to you uh, about that through various social media platforms. Um, and we don't we don't plan for it to be so long between it, the, this episode and the next as it was between this episode and the previous. Right, Jared? That's right, buddy. All right. So if you guys got any nominations, throw them at us. We'll we'll consider those, and otherwise we'll pick and get back to you. Uh, for Jared Moore, I am Jeff Wright, and we want to encourage you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. Talk to you next time.